0: From the studios of Postscript Media and
1: Canary Media.
0: I lived in Washington, D.C. for many years, and I became accustomed to the random ad campaigns focused on some niche legislative topic that would pop up around the city, often on bus stops or inside the metro or in a newspaper. But when ad campaigns suddenly appear in major newspapers that fall directly in your line of industry expertise, it's always a little arresting. And that's what happened to the London-based hydrogen analyst Adi Basham when he saw multiple full-page spreads in American newspapers recently. Okay, so in July, this industry coalition took out a full-page ad in the New York Times. Can you describe this ad for me?
1: Yeah, this was an ad by the Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Energy Association, which is an association sort of promoting the use of hydrogen in the US. Some of the members are ExxonMobil and Constellation Energy. And this ad basically says America cannot reach our goals without clean hydrogen. Um, and additionality could undercut it all. And it has a big si- sign on there saying factory closure.
0: So two days later, another set of green groups took out a full page ad. This was in the Washington Post. And described this one for me.
1: A number of green groups, including the Environmental Defense Fund and NRDC and Evergreen Action, were posting an ad in the Washington Post saying, don't spend billions on pollution, keep climate pollution out of the Clean Hydrogen Tax Credit. So basically arguing for more strict requirements on the production of clean hydrogen. Interestingly, these are ads that use the
0: words like additionality, uh, hourly matching, deliverability. Did you ever expect that there would be ads with these terms in them?
1: Not really, because the average news consumer will have probably never come across uh, any of, uh, of these terms before. So I guess the point is to not to necessarily address the average consumer, but potentially policymakers who have an influence on this.
0: What is happening right now?
1: Well, in August last year, uh, the U.S. came up with the Inflation Reduction Act, a massive subsidy package across the clean energy transition, but particularly with a very lucrative tax credit for the production of clean hydrogen, promising up to $3 per kilogram for the cleanest form of hydrogen with the lowest emissions. And at the time, it delegated the sort of the authority to set the emissions standard and how that clean hydrogen can be produced to the US Treasury to issue guidance within one year uh, on how that clean hydrogen can be produced. And that's coming out by mid August. And put, there's potentially billions of dollars of subsidy money involved. Uh, we estimated, I think, over $120 billion in subsidies that could go to all the announced clean hydrogen projects.
0: There is a fierce debate raging in the U.S. over how to set standards for hydrogen. Those standards will determine who benefits from tax credits, and more importantly, whether America's push for green hydrogen will make or break our efforts to clean up industry.
1: Without any restrictions on hydrogen production from grid electricity, the emissions of hydrogen production in the U.S. could be double that from producing just hydrogen from fossil fuels directly. So it's quite substantial in terms of the emissions.
0: This is The Carbon Copy, I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, a U.S. decision on tax credits for green hydrogen is imminent. Bloomberg analyst Adi Basham joins us to talk about how it might play out, how Europe might influence the outcome, and why we need green hydrogen in the first place. I want to take a brief moment to talk about the new season of the Big Switch podcast. We've been working on this for the last six months. We're so excited to bring it to you. Our production team at Latitude Media has been working for years with Dr. Melissa Lott and the team at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy uh, to make the Big Switch. It's a narrative show about how to rebuild our energy systems. And we are back with a five-part series exploring the supply chains behind lithium-ion batteries and the very complicated economic and political forces that come As batteries take over the world. So in this season, we break batteries apart, go to mining operations, manufacturing facilities, recycling plants, and talk to some of the most prominent experts about the pitfalls and promise of our expanding battery-based energy economy. And you'll hear the trailer a bit later in the show. So if this sounds like something you want to listen to, find The Big Switch anywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, so we've been talking about the hydrogen economy since the George W. Bush administration. There was a lot of attention on fuel cells in the early 2000s, but they just couldn't compete outside of niche applications. But as we get serious about cleaning up industry, hydrogen is once again being taken very seriously as a tool. We use a lot of hydrogen today in petroleum refining, chemicals production, metals treatment. The U.S. currently uses about 10 million metric tons of it. It primarily comes from splitting hydrogen and carbon molecules apart from methane. Fossil gas. If we can get that hydrogen from renewables, you can use it to clean up industrial applications. You could also use it as a storage medium, converting electrons from the sun and wind into storable molecules and then turning them back into electricity through a fuel cell or hydrogen fired power plant. You can also use hydrogen to make synthetic fuels. People call it a Swiss Army knife for decarbonization. Adi Basham is an associate hydrogen analyst at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and he's closely tracking the rise and cost trajectory of green low-carbon hydrogen. And how we define and promote that hydrogen has become a flashpoint in Europe and the U.S. So I caught up with him to understand how this is playing out right now.
1: So there's two forms of low-carbon hydrogen, right? One is just adding carbon capture and storage to the existing fossil hydrogen plant and reducing the emissions of that. The other form, which is sort of the newer technology, is to use water uh, and split that water into hydrogen and oxygen and an electrolyzer using renewable electricity. Based on the announced projects that we are seeing out to 2030, uh, we see about 8 million metric tons of clean hydrogen, so both forms proposed, which is about 80% of what the U.S. is using today and about 80% of the U.S. DOE's target as well.
0: So it's been a year since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed and the IRA created this new tax credit for clean hydrogen. And the bill did create some language around how to calculate emissions and what classifies clean hydrogen. But that calculation raised concerns as well. And it quickly spawned this debate between industry and environmentalists and and, and people within the industry. So as officials start to craft and finalize the language for these tax credits, how did the debate start picking up?
1: The debate really picked up uh, first in Europe uh, about a year ago. It's because the realization is that just producing hydrogen using an electrolyzer doesn't guarantee it's clean or, or low carbon, right? Because if in the US, for example, you uh, plug an electrolyzer into the electricity grid and don't, don't do anything to that, to, and don't to set any standards, that hydrogen has double the emissions intensity of just producing hydrogen from natural gas directly. So you need some more requirements than just procuring hydrogen from uh, electricity from from the grid, right? So the U.S. said that clean hydrogen needs to be produced uh, at a low carbon way and that those emissions need to be measured over the life cycle of that that production of that plant. And while that's already a good standard, what it doesn't account for is the sort of the consequential emissions that hydrogen produces by taking uh, renewable electrons away from other uses on the grid. And that's really what this new hydrogen guidance that should be issued by mid-August is trying to regulate. And that's where most of the debate is on.
0: How contentious has it gotten?
1: Uh, yeah, very, uh, very contentious. The debate is really formed around three pillars. The first one is called, so-called additionality or new clean supply. It states that clean hydrogen from the grid should only be produced from renew- new renewables that have come online and that are dedicated to that hydrogen production. It states that uh, you need to match your hydrogen production on an hourly basis or some sort of temporal correlation for hydrogen production and renewable energy generation. And finally, it mentions that the third pillar uh, is that the renewable energy generation needs to be close geographically speaking to the hydrogen generation. And these are really the three Uh, points of argument between environmental groups and uh, industries potentially looking at producing clean hydrogen.
0: And there are definitely clear lines between environmental groups and the hydrogen industry, but it's not as simple as that. There is debate within the hydrogen industry itself. So how do we see those lines separating the different sides of the debate?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. In general, environmental groups are more in favor of stricter regulation on these criteria, while uh, most of industry is not. But there's uh, many exceptions to that rule. Companies were really interested in uh, producing large volumes of clean hydrogen, like air products, and uh, manufacturers of electrolyzers like electric hydrogen have come out in favor of very stringent standards on on hydrogen production. Whereas others, uh, like Plug Power, which is also an electrolyzer manufacturer, doesn't really fa- uh, favor very strict standards on hydrogen production and then there's a bunch of companies in in the middle of this debate which want some rules on h- clean hydrogen production from the grid like next era energy in the us but are arguing for a phase in of these requirements over time so giving some sort of transition period to most companies to be able to adopt these rules later so
0: let's talk about what happens if rules are too loose what does that mean for emissions and then if the rules are too stringent. Do you see any potential curbing of these projects beyond what's already been announced?
1: The worst case is really that there's really no requirements for hydrogen production uh, from grid electricity, which means in the end, you end up creating more emissions than what fossil hydrogen production is already creating today. So let's say the US actually reaches its goal of 10 million metric tons of clean hydrogen production, and that is produced using grid electricity powered electrolyzers you're adding another 200 million metric tons of uh, CO2 to the atmosphere. So that's really the worst case with that uh, loose rules will enable. Stringent requirements, on the other hand, mean that, your, that hydrogen production using electrolyzers is actually emissions reducing, potentially 95% lower than the fossil alternative that you have and potentially even more if you consider all the positive effects electrolyzers can have on the electricity grid providing some sort of system balancing services to the to the grid
2: I'm Dr. Melissa Latt, and I'm the host of The Big Switch a show about how to rebuild our energy systems batteries are finding their way into everything from cars and heavy equipment to the electric grid. But scaling up production to meet the demands of a net zero economy is complicated and it's contentious.
0: If every country says we need to own the entire supply chain because we want all of those economic benefits, it's going to make the clean energy transition so much harder.
2: In a new five-part series, we're digging into the global battery supply chain, from mining to manufacturing, and we're asking what gets mined, traded, and consumed on the road to decarbonization.
0: If we think climate change is the existential threat facing our planet, we have to be having a broad conversation about where we want to get the minerals that build these products.
2: Listen to The Big Switch from Columbia University's SIPA Center on Global Energy Policy, available on February 28th, wherever you get your podcasts. So
0: how do you think this is going to, play out in the U.S. as we get closer to the final uh, language around the tax credit for hydrogen? I mean, what, what are indications are you getting about where the Biden administration will land on this?
1: Yeah, if I had to guess, I mean, uh, the U.S. is not the first market to set these rules. The European Union already has set rules, which are now leg- legislated. And if I guess, that the, I would say the U.S. will closely align with those rules for a number of reasons. And those rules are basically have strict requirements for all these criteria, but allow for some phase-in period uh, over time until most of these criteria come into effect. So at the U.S. guidance is likely to follow these three pillars that are outlined on additionality, temporal matching, and uh, deliverability or geographic correlation. Um, with some sort of phase-in, particularly on the requirement for additionality, so for new renewable energy resources, and on hourly matching. Um, so f- maybe starting with something more looser on the temporal correlation side, something like annual or monthly. Monthly has been implemented in Europe, for example, and then moving to hourly matching over time. Uh, and in the U- Europe, for example, uh, deliverability or geographic correlation is already a requirement from the get-go. So this could be implemented in the U.S. as well.
0: So we perhaps expect the U.S. to follow or borrow from what Europe has done. Do we expect Europe's rules to influence other regions of the world?
1: Yeah. um, So I have argued that, uh, been after a variety of publications, that because the EU is looking to become the largest importer of clean hydrogen globally, uh, that means that their rules really, really affect hydrogen production elsewhere, particularly for markets looking to export hydrogen to Europe. Uh, and basically set a global standard for hydrogen production uh, because the Euro- Europe is just such a large uh, hydrogen uh, user uh, going forward. So in that sense, the U.S. rules would likely mirror uh, hydrogen production rules in Europe as well.
0: Why do we need clean hydrogen? I mean, when you look at the European economy, the U.S. economy, why is hydrogen so important for cleaning up the industrial economies in, in those regions?
1: Yeah, uh, we would argue that hydrogen is essential to reaching net zero emissions. You can get very far in terms of emissions abatement just with uh, clean power and electrification of end uses alone. That gets you like 80-90% of the way. Then adding carbon capture and storage also gets you much closer. But the final 5-6% or so of emissions abatement that you need to reaching net zero by 2050 really relies on hydrogen being used widely in the sectors that is already being used today. Hydrogen is already a chemical feedstock that is being used for things like ammonia production, which is used for fertilizers. And in sectors that have no other alternative to using hydrogen, for example, as a fuel and heavy transport like ships and planes, uh, for steel production, hydrogen is one of the few options to produce primary steel. So it's absolutely essential that hydrogen gets scaled up if you want to reach net zero.
0: So you have been doing a lot of economic analyses on different forms of hydrogen, uh, most notably green hydrogen, and you show an important cost crossover for green hydrogen compared to uh, gray and blue hydrogen in key markets by the end of the decade. So what is causing that economic shift and what does it look like?
1: Yeah. While green hydrogen from electrolyzers is substantially more expensive today than any other form of hydrogen, whether that's gray hydrogen, which is typically produced at a dollar to two dollars per kilogram. And also it's more expensive than blue hydrogen, which is typically between a two to four dollars per kilogram. um, We do expect the cost declines in green hydrogen to be much faster than in any other technology. And that's because the cost of the core equipment could decline by 60, 70 percent or so by the end of the decade if we scale up the equipment. That's because electrolyzers, the equipment that we use, are extremely nascent technology. We only deploy about uh, almost a gigawatt of electrolyzers a year. If we scale it up to potentially hundreds of gigawatts by the end of the decade and going further we expect the cost of that equipment to decline by 50 60 or 70% or so which really drives cost reductions of green or renewable hydrogen below the cost of production of blue hydrogen so so it becomes the cheapest form of low carbon hydrogen going forward and
0: so you have these uh, cost reductions when it comes to electrolyzers but there's this big question about renewable energy supply so why is that a problem for the green hydrogen industry
1: Yeah, electrolyzers are extremely power-hungry, right? Each kilogram of hydrogen production today requires about 50 kilowatt hours of electricity to be supplied to that electrolyzer to produce that electricity. Electrolyzers are also not that efficient, only converting about 70% or so of the electricity that you supply into energy in the form of hydrogen. And if you're expecting to rely on green hydrogen going forward and really deploy a lot of electrolyzers to power that hydrogen production, then a lot of electricity demand will flow towards hydrogen production if you look at our scenarios uh, by the end of the decades electrolyzers alone take up a couple percentage of all electricity demand globally by 2050 under a net zero scenario electrolyzers producing hydrogen take up a third of all electricity demand almost just to power uh, power themselves to produce hydrogen so all of global a third of all global electricity demand And that's a problem, because all of that additional demand needs to be supplied by additional renewable electricity capacity as well. And even in the near term, that can become a problem. Last year, we compared how much of the share of the forecast of renewables, so solar and wind, that we expected to be deployed by 2030, is taken up by electrolyzers. If about 20 million metric tons or so of clean hydrogen are produced uh, globally by the end of the decade... And we got to about 16% of all the renewables we expect to deploy this decade will just go to the production of hydrogen. So this 16% that needs to be either taken away from other uses, where the clean electrons could go to, or built on top of the existing renewable energy forecast that we have.
0: What derails... Green hydrogen? Is it supply chain issues? Is it the cost of electrolyzers? Is it re- the availability of renewable energy, additional renewable energy projects? What, if not all three of those things, could derail green hydrogen?
1: Yeah, it could be a combination of all those things. I mean, as I said, um, we haven't really installed many electrolyzers globally. We're selling about a gigawatt of them every year. Most of those are exp- uh, deployed in China. The largest electrolyzer operating outside of China is just 20 megawatts in size. And we're looking at scenarios where by the end of the decade, we need to go from a few hundred megawatts deployed today, or maybe up to a gigawatt deployed today, to something like 200, 250 gigawatts of electrolyzers that could be potentially built if we just look at uh, the potential proposed projects and what we think is feasible out of those projects. So we don't really have much expertise in in building these gigawatt scale plants yet. So a lot could go wrong. In terms of, if you look at the supply chain, uh, we think there's enough proposed electrolyzer manufacturing uh, capacity uh, and proposals to do, build more electrolyzers that you could supply all those few hundred gigawatts of electrolyzers by the end of the decade if all these plants were to come online. In terms of the cost of production, with the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and subsidies in Europe and East Asia, uh, those will probably level out the cost of production even at more expensive electrolyzer costs today. And then we expect, with these subsidies driving deployment in the near term, Long term, the cost of the electrolyzers come, out, come down substantially as well. So the real bottleneck could be the development of renewables. There has been massive permitting issues, not only in the U.S., but also in Europe, that have been holding back, back the development of renewables. Those are being addressed in, in Europe, for example, by designating pre-permitted areas for renewable energy deployment. It's something that has been called for in the U.S. as well, to speed up permitting of of renewables. And especially as you require additionality with with hydrogen production, that could become a bottleneck, delaying the transition to a large-scale hydrogen uh, economy. But uh, it's not something that will stifle the build-out of electrolyzers long-term either.
0: Well, Adi, thank you so much for helping us sort this out.
1: Of course. uh, Happy to be here.
0: Again, Adi Basham is an associate hydrogen analyst at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. We will link to his recent report on the economics of green hydrogen. And the Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. The folks at Canary Media have been covering this extensively, so we'll provide some links to Jeff St. John's reporting on the debate over the tax credits. And this episode was produced and written by me with help from Dalvin Abouage, Sean Marquans, our engineer. Original music came from Sean Marquand, from Echo Finch, from Epidemic Sounds, and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by our investor, Prelude Ventures. Prelude's a venture capital firm that partners with startups, entrepreneurs, that address climate change across energy, food, ag, transportation, logistics, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. And uh, you can support this show by just hooking us up with a review on Apple. Give us a rating anywhere you get the show and send out your thoughts on social media. Just let the world know that you're listening to this show because a lot of people need to know about these trends that are unfolding in the low carbon economy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Thanks for being here. We'll catch you next time.